1: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
0: Imagine this America today, as we speak, has $100 billion in student loan debt, $90 billion outstanding in automobile loans. You look at some of the prices coming out of Detroit and elsewhere, not surprised. $50 billion in credit card debt. And consumer debt overall, this is unsecured debt, $3.2 trillion. I guess it's no surprise, therefore, that 65% of divorce decrees in the United States today or because of finances. At the end of the day, irresponsible money management is something that we all learn. Well, if that be the case, then how can we have the talk, the conversation with our children so that we learn them properly when it comes to money management? Joining me now is Scott and Bethany Palmer, authors of The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. And Scott and Bethany, welcome to both of
2: you. Well, thanks for having
3: us. It's great to be here.
0: Now, I'm curious with your own family, um, what prompted you to decide and at what age that this was a conversation you needed to have with
2: the kids? Well, I think that's a great question. Um, for the really last 10 years, Bethany and I have been working with couples all over the world when it comes to love and money and the conversations that we need to have as couples. And we were constantly getting asked, well, how do we talk to our kids about this? Um, we're actually the creators of something called the Five Money Personalities, and we have a pretty amazing assessment online for individuals and couples to take to be able to understand who they are and what their money personalities are. And so we were being constantly asked, how do we deal with our kids and how do we deal with our kids? So that put us on a journey to really figure out and try to understand what, what we're dealing with. We have currently a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, so or 11-year-old. So... We're in the middle of this whole parent thing. And, and what we found in kind of the way that we made our book really applicable to parents is that we found that every age is a little different. So really, starting at age five, we need to start having conversations with our kids. And What we found between the ages of five and 12 is when kids become entitled. Then you jump into teenage years, and between 13 and 17 is when we can – and a lot do, teach their kids to be materialistic. And then what we found 18 and beyond, 18 to 25, but, you know, we've got literally 35-year-olds still living in mom and dad's basement, is that 18 to 25 is when they become what we call financially dependent. And so we're dealing with three different age groups. We're dealing with different conversations that need to take place in those age, in those different ages, because we're really addressing three different major issues, which every parent is
0: facing. Yeah, and this seems to be, Bethany, so obvious in the sense that I think all parents recognize early on that their child's personalities are, are shaped and, and molded. Part of that is a product of environment and their own personalities and so forth. So if their overall personality is developed at such an early age, why not their personality, quote unquote, related to money or how they how they grow up viewing money relating to money and and the role that money p- plays in their lives?
3: Well, it's interesting, God talks about money more than just about any other subject in the Bible because he knew how much it was going to impact us every day. A lot of times people think money just impacts us on our financial planning, making sure we have our insurance and retirement, investments and taxes and estate planning all taken care of. Those are all very important. But what the truth of the matter is, is you have everyday decisions that you have to make very quickly when it comes to money. Simple things like, are you gonna go out to eat? Uh, or or bag or brown bag your lunch are you going to go to and get an expensive cup of coffee or are you going to brew it at home and our children are going to be and are starting at a very young ages dealing with the same exact thing and so what has to, what we have found is that it can be such an encouragement to children to really understand their perspective of money which we have we can talk about here and flesh this out a little bit we can we say with our whole heart, we know that God made our money personalities. Are they impacted by our parents? Yes, but, but the way we look at money, and we have some examples we can share here in a little bit, but with that being said, we as parents better understand our own children's two money personalities, and then with that in mind, how encouraging it is to have these conversations, because everybody knows what kind of conversations maybe you should have, But how do you have them in a way that your children will hear them and not rebel against them?
0: Well, and maybe even a bigger sort of preliminary question for parents. And this, uh, Scott, I imagine is a difficult one for, while perhaps not all parents, certainly a good percentage of them based on the statistics I cited a moment ago. And that is, you know, every parent is nervous about the time coming when they have to have the talk. Now, usually, that's birds and the bees. The money talk. Yeah, and 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 the birds and the bees talk. I would imagine for some parents, might even come easier. And I and I, I phrase it that way, Scott, for this reason: having the conversation with your children about money, their money personality, their relationship to money, and what that's going to look like when they move into their adult life. Um, doesn't it require some introspection in terms of of the parent getting a handle on their own money personality? Because let's face it, there are spenders and there are savers, and you walk through all of these different money personalities. Well, what happens when you're a parent trying to sit down with um, your child and lecture he or she on what it means to be a saver when in fact the one doing the lecturing is a dyed-in-the-wool, card-certified spender?
2: Well, I mean that that is a great point because what what often happens is we naturally try to make our kids like our money personality is. And so if you're by chance, let's say maybe you're a uh, you're a primary we have two money personalities, but let's say you're a primary saver and your kid is a primary spender. You're always going to be making comments like, you know, well that money just burns a hole in your pocket within a matter of minutes or you need to have a savings plan and Part of what we tried to do with our book was say, hey, how do you talk when your money personalities are different than your kids? And and even more importantly, how do you talk to your kids when maybe you've made some money mistakes? Because we've all made money mistakes, but I think everybody listening would agree, those are great learning opportunities, too, for our kids. If we can say, hey, listen, this is what your mom and I did. It ended up being a bad, a bad decision that we made, but this is how we corrected it, and this is how we got out of it. Because... When you start having those conversations, and when you start not only speaking to their money personality, but also being vulnerable with where you've succeeded and where you've failed, it, that's where really the communication can begin. And I think often what happens is we think as parents, we're supposed to just you know, give this huge amount of wisdom to our children, and they're just going to look at us in awe and be like, wow, mom and dad really have all this money stuff figured out. It's not going to happen. Let me give you an example. Um, my, I have a son who is a primary spender, and so we don't use, we don't even use words like um, save money. We have a future spending plan set up for him. That's the kind of language that he is going to understand.
3: And, you know, I think of um, my relationship with my mom, and we could not be a more opposite side of the spectrum. I'm a primary spender and secondary risk taker, so I'm kind of on that spender risk taker side is on the totally other side of the spectrum she's a saver security seeker and we butted heads so much growing up because those little money decisions would come up like perfect example i was a competitive swimmer nationally ranked swimmer swimming was a big part of my life and my coach told me that i needed to get this new swimsuit and my mom gave me i mean it was expensive and my mom just gave me the biggest made the biggest deal out of that It really, in retrospect, wasn't that much money, but to her it was because she's a saver and savers, I mean, that you can never save enough money for a saver. And so really it made me feel like I wasn't worth buying that swimsuit. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, we we can be unintentional consequences of not understanding your child's money personalities as you are putting them down, squelching them of who they are and how they've been uniquely made. And you don't even know it. And that's where the challenge is, is, you know, parents think, oh, well, I need to teach them this or that. But if you're teaching them in a way that they can hear it, that they can relate to it, that it makes sense to them because of the way that they were uniquely made and the way that they perceive money. You know, we all, we all not all of us have a real healthy relationship when it even comes to money. You know, money is something that, that we work with and we talk about like i said a little bit every single day and if we don't have ourselves figured out and then we don't understand our children we do like i said unintended consequences are happening and really impacting our our relationships with our children. On today's
0: edition of Lifeline, a look at the five money conversations to have with your kids at every age and every stage. By the way, we've got four complimentary copies of the book we're going to be giving out here coming up just momentarily. Meanwhile, we'll take a pause, get you updated on some traffic. When we come back... If it's true that opposites attract, how problematic can that be for not only children, but eventually when they grow up to be adults in married life? We'll get to that part of the equation as this edition of Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: Welcome back to The Conversation. Scott and Bethany Palmer with us today. They're known as The Money Couple. We're talking about their latest book, The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. And let's talk about this notion of opposites attract. We always hear that when it comes to relationships. And I'm wondering... How problematic is that, certainly later in life, when, you know, as you were suggesting before the break, Bethany, uh, boy, you get a husband and wife team together, and one is the spender-risk taker combination, the other is the saver-security saker. wow, that can really <laughs> create quite a firestorm. That, and you're I, not kidding. And, oh. and I would imagine the earlier in life, the kids recognize who they are, what their personality looks like, the easier it will be later in life, relationally speaking, to deal with all that.
3: You know, it is so true. You know, we always say, Scott and I always say, opposites attract. But then you get married and opposites attack. Mm. And the problem is when the money conversations come up or are decisions that you need to make about money, money um, that decisions that you need to make that involve money, that's where the problems happen and then they, the conflict happens all the time the more opposite you are the more challenges you're going to have and you are so correct if you can understand this as a young child it's so fun our our children starting at age seven is when they started to really understand what their money personalities and say things to us like like mom you're a risk taker so Don't you want to do that? You know, it's amazing to us how at such young age how kids can learn these things and think about how the next generation of marriages, how much healthier they can be because they understand this. Now, we're not saying that you can't marry your opposite because most of the time we're attracted to it. As a matter of fact, oftentimes it makes you a better person. It's a more exciting relationship. The thing is, though, is if you realize this and then when those challenges come up, you know where they're coming from and you're not putting the person down, you're 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 trying to deal and understand their many personalities
0: now now some listening right now might be thinking well this this makes sense okay so there's not a prohibition against it but probably life would be easier if instead of marrying the opposite we married the equal but i have to wonder scott if that is not we're out with problems as well for example if you get two spender risk takers together my goodness, that's, <laughs> that's yeah. going to mean there's
2: never any money in the house. That's or right. That's right. They, they will instantly help that three point <laughs> trillion trillion. Yes, in, it in will. Your debt. So, yeah, yep, and, and that's, right. that's a great point mm-hmm. that um, we need to make. We, we do a lot of uh, premarital counseling with couples, and sometimes they'll take the money personality assessment, and they'll be like, we have four money personalities. Are we going to survive? And we say, absolutely, because really those differences can really become your strengths inside your relationship. The spender, if they're married to a saver, they both have really positive points of their money personality and really negative points of their money personality. But if they can get those money personalities in balance, if they can learn, okay, this is why and how I personally deal with money, and here's my relationship with money. Oh, and now I have this other person, and they have a different relationship with money. So not only are they getting themselves in check, but they're also understanding who their spouses are, that's how they can really have a really healthy, what we call a money-healthy relationship. And what we find is that couples that get married that have the same money personalities are, met, are much more less likely to argue. Bethany and I's primary money personalities are both spenders. So if she goes and spends money, uh, we don't usually have an argument about that or tension. Where our tension hits is that she's a risk taker and I'm a security seeker. Secondarily. Secondarily. So we have the opportunity. That's where we have conflicts. And so... It's just really important to know that, uh, what those money personalities are because your kids are going to be modeled how you communicate about money. And that's really important to understand. The kids are watching everything. We've had about 60,000 people take this assessment online. And of that 60,000, the, the percentage of married couples that took it, 80% of those had an opposite dynamic in their relationship. So 80% of the married couples that we surveyed had a, a different opposite money personality. So you, you talk about a 65% divorce rate. Actually, what we found is statistically the divorce rate is between 48 and 55%, depending on who you're using. But 70% of all divorces, the number one reason that was listed was conflicts over money. And so when it's we found that 80% of, of couples... We're married to their money opposite. We weren't surprised at all mm-hmm. with that 70%. So here's the great thing. Here's the encouraging thing. The encouraging thing is that you can succeed in a relationship, that once you understand who you are, you've got a much better chance of understanding who your spouse is. And once you have a much better chance of understanding how your spouse is, then you can get on the same page and you can have an amazing family that understands that open communication about money is good, mom and dad don't always see eye to eye about money, but they know how to communicate about it, and then your kids can trust
0: you. And this and also so means that we it. have a greater degree of responsibility, don't we, as parents, in the sense that, you know, we're typically thinking about providing them with a good moral foundation. We take them to church. We make sure that they get a decent education, prepare them for life, things of that sort. But it makes the money talk, apparently, Scott, all that more important, because what you're really doing is setting a, a foundation not only for that child's economic health and well-being later on in life, but their marital health and well-being as well. So now, all of a sudden, conversations over um, allowances, for example, and do you get it or do you earn it? That suddenly becomes a very
2: important discussion. Absolutely. And and what we find is uh, what we have found is that often parents exclude their their conversations um, about allowance. So what you've really got to really got to figure out is your kids' money personality, so that you have so that that you have the opportunity to speak into them. So. For instance, my 11-year-old um, is a primary spender, and at about the age of, of um, 8, what we decided we would do as a family with allowances, really from 5 to 8, 5 to 9, we, didn't, uh, we gave them an allowance, and now they earn their money. And so the cool thing that we created for, for parents, because we were like kind of trying to figure out, okay, how's the best way to make a, a decision or figure out how, who our kids' money personalities are... So what we did was we started looking at all these different age groups, we started coming up with questions and we started watching the kids to help parents figure out how to assess their children when it came to their money personalities. So like a big one was Easter candy. We watched how kids interacted with their Easter candy. Some saved it, some consumed it quickly, some traded it, some had a plan on their consumption and some gave it to their friends. Each of those ways of dealing with candy is reflection of their money personality. So what we did um, with the five conversations to have with your kids at every age and stage was we put a code on the back of the book. And we actually created a money personality assessment from five to 12. We created a separate money personality assessment for 13 to 18. And we created another money personality assessment for 18 and beyond. And so parents can actually buy the book, scratch off the foil um, on the back of the book, and you get five assessments per book, five free assessments per purchase of the book. So you can actually sit down with your kids, take, watch them take the assessment. Five to 12-year-olds need a little bit more directions. The teenagers take the ball and run. No problem. And 18 and beyond take the ball and run. And it will actually give you their money personalities. Then what you can do is you can look at the, the conversations that we outline in the book. Okay, so let's talk about allowance. How do you talk about allowance to a spender? How do you talk about allowance to a saver? How about a risk taker? How about a flyer? How about a security seeker? So we actually help parents based on the kids' money personalities talk about things like allowance, extracurricular activities. Um, For our teenagers, yeah, the give-me's for the little ones. For our teenagers, technology, I mean, the peer pressure behind having the perfect clothes, having the perfect technology, being in every extracurricular activity that you can possibly come up with. So we actually help parents talk to their kids but you're actually speaking the child's language.
0: And and you know what I love about this is there's a stroke stroke of genius here, Uh, Bethany (laughs) and Scott, there really is, because parents today are beginning to realize, for example, in the arena of discipline, uh, that it needs to be unique to the child's personality. Some parents understand you have a child, and simply sending them to bed without dinner does not get the message through. Right, right. And yet another child with whom you discipline by saying, I'm taking away the car keys, no you can't go to the movies this weekend, or we're locking up your video game, may work for some children, may not work for others. Absolutely. So this 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 one size fits all approach that we've tried to do when it comes to parenting, particularly as it relates to money. I think the clear results of how how much it's not working is in the divorce rates that we spoke of earlier. It's in the amount of consumer indebtedness that we have and the manner in which not only we we manage money as a people but listen 17 heading toward 18 trillion dollars debt. I want to tell you something there too. And you know, let's let's talk after the break about the whole issue for example of how we handle at the earliest ages your allowance. Now When I was growing up, my dad had a bit of a philosophy when it came to allowance. Um, He said that uh, he was going to take sort of an approach that would help me hopefully someday grow up to be a Roosevelt Democrat. And by that, he meant that you got money from the government, but you had to work for it. That's as opposed to a Johnson Democrat where you get money from the government that you're entitled to it. We'll take a time out talk a bit more about the whole issue of money personalities and how to have those five money conversations with your kids. A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: All right. Back to the conversation. Scott and Bethany Palmer with us tonight. They are The Money Couple, the new book, Five Money Conversations to have with your kids at every age and every stage. We're talking about, quite frankly, how to prevent in large part a huge disaster once they get older adults, whether it be an impact on their finances or ultimately on their marriage, understanding your child's unique money personality and then being able to educate your child based on that personality is really the key of what we're speaking about today. And and one of the ways in which, of course, that can and should be done is this whole matter, of Bethany and Scott, of the way we teach our kids the value of money through their allowance. Now, yeah. as I mentioned, Dad had the belief that he wanted me to be a Roosevelt Democrat. He thought that it was okay if I got money from him, the government, as he formed it. Uh, but I had to work for it. And of course, the issue of entitlement today is a major problem in our society. So how do we go about managing the whole issue of allowances based on chi- our child's unique money personality?
3: Well, it's that's a really great question. And let's just start with just the overall approach and what we're trying to accomplish. What we're trying to accomplish is having our children understand the basic concepts of, of money, how much it's worth and how to, to and where to spend it or save it. And so what one of the things that we've discovered is that if you teach children at a very young age, it's I mean, you can start as, as young as three and you just give them three dollars a week. They don't have to work for it yet. You just give them $3 a week. And with these $3, they have to put, they have three bins, if you will, $1 into save, $1 into spend, and $1 into give. And giving is to charity or your church. And what happens is you want to train those neurons, if you will, those giving neurons and those saving neurons and those spending neurons, and you want to train them at a very young age that, that money is something that you do something with, and you need to be intentional with it. So again, at a very young age, not connected with chores, just you just give it to them. Again, to train that a third, a third, a third. Now, once they turn, like right around eight or nine, it depends on the child and how mature they are, now what you do is they start earning it. And the way that they earn it, and this is where as parents, you have to sit down and make a list of things that are above and beyond normal everyday chores. I don't know about you, but I think there are some, a lot of things that you do around your household that's just part of being a family. I mean, you don't get paid for it. It's just, you you got a roof over your head. This is what we do as a family to keep this house running. But if you're creative as a parent, you know, maybe it's cleaning out a pond or it's, um, cleaning up a walkway or it's, pulling, you know, excessive amounts of weeds, or I don't know, you can just be very creative as parents, and you come up with additional activities and things that they do that now they earn that money. A great example is um, our child, we had something that that he was doing, and we told him that this particular job was going to be worth $5. Well, I mean, $10. But you know what? He didn't work hard. And you know, he's getting into those teenage years and starting to just kind of mosey around and go real slow and I'm like, Nope, sorry, all right, pay just got docked, five bucks. And he's like, What? <laughs> and it's like so you're using money to show, them. they're earning money, they're not just getting it, they're earning it. But here's the wonderful thing. Now they've earned it, but you know what their first reaction is? Because you train those neurons. They take any money they earn and they put a third into spend, a third into give, and a third into save. Because those neurons have been changed trained then once they start to earn money through their jobs when they start to get to be 16 you know 17 18 they get that money and they start doing that same thing because that's just what's ingrained in them so taking it in ages and stages and not being there's so many parents we see well i didn't have to i had to work for any money that i got and you know just having these un you know putting our childhood into it listen Parenting has changed, times have changed. There's so much more that our children can buy now than they used to be able to. And if we aren't intentional with this and using an inside of our home, being the training ground for this, we're gonna raise a whole nother generation that doesn't understand money. And this is absolutely key and crucial. So we are just excited to see so many parents applying this approach and just seeing great results, great results. And let's say you start late. Let's say it's, you have a 15-year-old and you haven't done any money management, you haven't talked about money at all, and da-da-da-da. You know what? It is never too late to start. And if you want to tell your 15-year-old, here's three bucks, and you're going to take a third, they'll be perfectly happy to take it. But you'll be, again, training that, those neurons to save, spend, and give.
0: We appreciate the insights today. And I, I think for parents, getting this conversation started, uh, Bethany, is critically important. And, and again, part of this is going to go back to the heart of not just wanting to be good parents and give our children the proper foundation necessary to be not only economically successful, but as we've suggested today, relationally successful as they grow up in life, I guess then that leads to the other important question, and that is, where do we start? Uh, how, How do we go about getting this dialogue started? understanding their personalities. And, you know, if you have six kids, you may wind up with an an interesting combination of different money personalities there. And then, of course, at the same time, you know, teaching our kids things like the art of compromise and and the dangers of entitlement and the connection between risk and reward. How do we start this conversation, Scott?
2: Yeah, well, the the first thing is to go get the book (laughs) because the book out just outlines everything so easy for parents. We did not want this to be a complicated hyper-involved book. We wanted to be able to have parents say, oh, okay, I've got, a, I've got an 8-year-old and I have a 17-year-old, and to be able to bounce around the book and really use it as a resource. The great thing about the book is that when you get the book, you can scratch off the code and back, and it gives you those five different money personality assessments that you can have your kids take right away. So knowledge, 10
3: minutes. It's yeah, not 10 minutes
2: at the most. Um, knowledge is power, and if we can just take some time to get to know our kids, we're going to be able to have the conversations that they're going to be able to hear. So I'd say, you know, you can get the book at major booksellers. Um, It's in Christian bookstores all over the place, and it's called The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. If parents want to know what their money personalities are, they can go to themoneycouple.com, and they can take that assessment for free. Now, that assessment is only going to be for free for about another two or three weeks um, before we start charging for that assessment. But if parents want to know who they are so that they can understand where maybe they're seeing differently uh, than their kids are when it comes to money, we've still got that at themoneycouple.com. It's a free assessment. It'll take you 10 minutes, and you can you know, buy, the, buy the five money conversations to have with your kids right there as well.
0: Excellent. And the book is available through, I guess, The Usual Suspects, Amazon, and directly through your website as well.
2: Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And like I said, it's at most, in most Christian bookstores.
0: Excellent. Again, the book is called Simply Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Every Stage and um, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through their website at themoneycouple.com. That's themoneycouple.com. And our thanks to Scott and Bethany Palmer for being with us tonight and offering those insights. The book, by the way, newly published by our friends at Thomas Nelson. A w Publishing is actually covered, but uh, Thomas Nelson is the, is the main publisher.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig
0: Roberts. It reads like a laundry list that could have been created by the devil himself. Terrorist attacks, mass shooting attacks on campuses, political strife, racism, economic instability, moral decline, church attendance decline, certainly true here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it has to make you pause and wonder as we take account of what's going on, not only on the the stage um, morally, spiritually, politically across the globe, but certainly here at home, exactly what's going on. Where is the church? Where should we as Christians be in addressing all of this? Because we know ultimately the insights and the key to not only what's wrong, but what the solution is, is ultimately found in Scripture a very special conference coming to the San Francisco Bay Area this weekend. We'll give you more details on that. But uh, meanwhile, I'd like to invite into our conversation tonight Pastor Andrew Chavaria. He is the pastor at Elkhart Church of Christ, a U.S. Army veteran, co-founder of Liberty Canon Media Group, the executive director of the Truth and Liberty Foundation. He speaks all across the country on the topic of culture, God, government, and where our nation is today, where it's headed spiritually, and most importantly, where is the church we need to be. And, Andrew, great to have you on the program.
1: Thanks for having me on. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity.
0: Boy, you know, kind of uh, taking the temperature, so to speak, morally and spiritually of where America is at today, it, it would seem that not only are we in trouble... But many would wonder, where does the church stand in all of this? I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that the mainstream church in America seemed to be supercharged politically. That certainly was true in the 1980s. We were on the cutting edge of, of addressing many moral and spiritual issues, uh, both from the pulpit as well as uh, from a political standpoint. But it seems as if in, in recent years there's kind of been an atrophying of not only the church's um, influence in the governance of our nation, but but even in terms of just our our overall influence in, in the day to day life in America. Why is that?
1: You know, I, I think it boils down to to uh, the simple aspect of turnover. Uh, when you think about, and what I mean by that is, we've lost some of the wise and old leadership that we had in the '80s, and we've now turned to individuals that grew up in the '60s and the '70s, those that grew up during the sexual revolution, and uh, those that grew up in a day and age where, uh, quite frankly, uh, the theory of evolution and all of these things during the space race kind of rude the day in the classroom, and um, quite simply, I think Abraham Lincoln put it best. He said, the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. And uh, we now see what happens when you remove God. I mean when you start about 1965 uh, 1965 we start removing God from the classroom. We start, uh, we start uh, going going progressively through the years. We remove the Bible from classrooms. We remove prayer from classrooms. Um, then we start getting into the 70s, and now abortion becomes the norm with Roe v. Wade. Uh, then you get into the 90s. Homosexuality uh, gets on the platform, and uh, now you get into the 2000s, and it's, it's the law of the land. Well, how did all of this happen? Well, it happens because people that grew up already sensitizing themselves to this aspect of life kind of just just stay back and and you know like i said i mean abraham lincoln said it best this is now the philosophy of our government and we now live in a place and time where um i think and this is just my personal philosophy it's one of the reasons that i travel the country talking about this stuff um i think that it's also weighed heavy on our pulpits our pulpits aren't the same anymore they're so watered down And uh, preaching a, a, you know, they're basically giving people a stick of cotton candy when they walk through the door, and there's no truth being preached anymore.
0: So really, in in a large sense, then, this is sort of the product of erosion. I mean, the the old saying that the drip becomes the trickle that turns into the stream that becomes the river, and before you know it, it's cut the Grand Canyon. And in some respects, while we can't point to any singular event that um, is at the center of this, it's many of the events. It's, uh, you know, kicking God out of the classroom, uh, you know— Dare we put up the Ten Commandments to encourage students to do things like, I don't know, not steal, not kill, not lie, obey their parents, things of that sort. And so all of a sudden then you have a combination of what's taking place not only at the institutional level within public education, certainly within higher education, the body politic, then we add to that. I think you're right, some some levels of frustration in the pulpit in America today that and certainly this is not meant to be a, a blanket accusation, pastor. But there are some pastors, I think, that would conclude that, you know, if I get up there and I start preaching sin, salvation, sanctification, start really talking about the tough serious stuff that we see in Scripture, there'll be nobody there on Sunday morning. And, you know, we've got to pay an electric light bill, and I have a salary that has to be paid, and, you know, we need to put new carpeting in the church, so I'm going to have to go a little bit easier on all of this. And as a result, we end up watering down the effectiveness of the gospel to the point where it has no effect.
1: Right. And, and to me, when, when that happens, and, and I mean, it, it's textbook. You see churches like this popping up everywhere, um, you know, multimillion-dollar buildings. They have the whole, you know, the whole band, the lights, the smoke, everything like that, uh, to draw people to come in and do those things. And the sermon is just so fluffy that you just really don't get anything out of it. But I, I think what that is a product of is that's a product of Christians who have lost their identity. You know, when we, when we start, and here's what I mean by that. So many people think that you go to church, and here's the thing, it, 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 you know, and I, you're, this is coming from a guy that stands up almost every single Sunday behind a pulpit somewhere. If not my home church, I'm somewhere preaching and teaching the gospel. So, so just you know, <laughs> stick with me when I say it, because I'm kind of talking to myself, but you don't come to church. You go to worship God. The Bible actually teaches Christians that we are the church. We're the ones that are called out, and when we get that in our mind, when we start realizing that that is our identity, we are the church, and we stop going to church, and we start going to worship God, it doesn't matter what the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist, the reverend, the minister, I don't care what you call it, it doesn't matter what he says. If it's true, you're there to worship God, and you're going to accept it.
0: So then the real distinction here is the difference between going to church and being the church.
1: Yep. And that's why we are where we are today. And the the catalyst that, that this has happened, the reason that this has happened, is because of the pulpit. Um, you know, Charles Finney is probably one of my favorite characters during the American Revolution. He was a he was a cleric during the American Revolution. And he actually says, I mean I, and I'm just gonna kinda quote this pretty quick, but he says, Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a great degree Mm. listen to what he says next though he says if there's if there's a decay of conscience the pulpit is responsible for it he says if the press if the public press lacks moral discrimination the pulpit is responsible for it if the church grows degenerate and worldly the pulpit is responsible for it he goes on and he says if the world loses interest in religion that's key right now. That's, you, you talked about in the introduction that so many people, even in the Bay Area, to a low attendance uh, in churches. If people lose interest in religion, he says the pulpit's responsible for it. But I want you to see what happens next, because this is what we're talking about, the climate of where we are as a nation right now. He says if Satan rules in the halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics becomes so corrupt that the very foundation of our government is ready to fall away, The pulpit is responsible for it. Then he concludes, he says, let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. The reason that Charles Finney could speak so boldly that way is because when we declared our independence, When we declared our independence, the king did not attribute George Washington. He did not attribute the Continental Army. He did not attribute the militia and the Minutemen. The the, the people that they attributed American independence to, that our enemy attributed American independence to, was a group that he called the Black Robe Regiment. It was the pastors and the preachers of the day. He said it's because they're preaching truth, and they're preaching liberty in Christ, and they're preaching what we don't want them to preach, and that's where America spurned its freedom from. The pulpit was responsible for American freedom.
0: Well, ironically enough, uh, you know, even a a stranger to our land, a visitor, uh, de Tocqueville, made the exact same observation in terms of the impact and importance of what takes place at the pulpit. I mean, at the end of the day, Uh, We have to recognize, and when we talk about things such as a moral code, that the Bible is the standard setter, but it is the church that is the standard bearer. And if we're not willing to bear the standard that Scripture sets for us and make that proclamation from the pulpit and live it out in the pews, uh, then I think the observations of of Finney, as, as uncomfortable as they may be, Are perhaps sadly bang on. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back for more of our conversation. Our special guest in this segment of the program is Pastor Andrew Chavarria as Lifeline LifeLine continues. continues.